you know, uh, in the book of Ephesians, elsewhere, it says uh, that you were God's workmanship, and the, the word there, it's, it's, uh, it's hard to put into English. It really means his, his craftsmanship, um, his, his artistry. Um, God put us in the world for that purpose that, that Laurie described. And, uh, you know, when, this, when Paul writes in, in that portion of Ephesians where he says, you bring psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, um, this is, uh, I'm not writing that poem. Like, that's not coming from me. Um, and I benefit from hearing that truth reinforced um, by the Spirit working in Lori. So if you ever feel like that happens for you, that there's something that you're supposed to share with the larger body, come talk to me uh, so we can look at that and, and talk through that together. I'd love to do that. Um, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, two things I wanted to tell you. One is that uh, this week was our denomination's General Assembly. Uh, they met in Memphis this year, and um, I, that for the first time ever, uh, it was offered in conjunction online. And so I opted to not go to Memphis in person because it's June and it's Memphis, and I don't want to be there, um, to be quite honest. Uh, but watching General Assembly from a screen voting digitally was just not nearly so fun. And I probably would not make that decision again. I'd much rather have been in sweltering Memphis than, than following along on Zoom. Um, it was a great time. Um, I really appreciate being a part of the EPC. Um, we had awesome inputs. Um, it's really not just a business meeting. It's a training time. We had people like Ligon Duncan, who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary, and D.A. Carson there to, to give input. And we hear from tons of our missionaries um, and just so you know, our church was on a, a very small good list, read publicly, because we supported our denomination uh, 100% uh, that they asked of us over last year. So our names were on the good list. There's no bad list publicized, it's just a good list. So we were, good job. Uh, the second thing is the councils are here. And uh, we're grateful that although Eliana is not physically in the building yet, she is in Asheville. She's at Mission Hospital. Um, yeah, we're pumped about that. They, they've adopted this little girl who was born and uh, was in the NICU in Charlotte. And uh, we're working together to, to cover the cost of the transfer from, from Charlotte. So they didn't have to drive to Charlotte to go hold this little girl. They can now just go to Asheville, which is a lot easier when you also have uh, another child who needs attention and jobs to attend to. So uh, we're going to continue to ask you to give towards that. Um, when you come up for communion, be able to give. And you can write a check to Valley Hope Church and just write councils, C-O-U-N-C-E-L-L, to give towards the cost of that transfer, um, $4,000, I think we can get there uh, together. And anything, if we go over, anything will just go straight to them. Uh, we're not taking a percentage of that or anything like that. They're, they're going, that'll be straight to them to help with their many other thousands of dollars of adoption costs. If you have questions about that, raise your hand again. They're up here. So most of you can see the back of their heads. Memorize the back of these skulls and find them if you are interested. All right, Acts chapter 5, starting at the 17th verse. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look... The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have fulfilled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But, as, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of these people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, that the Christ is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your scriptures. God, we thank you that you continue to speak to your people, and we pray that our ears would be open to these, your scriptures, and that your spirit would pierce our hearts. God, we pray that you would help our hearts to be soft, help our hands to be loose with our own lives, that we might offer them to you in response. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, before I forget, um, some of you have already asked, um, my wife is doing much better. Um, she had a root canal on Monday, and she was pumped about that, um, which doesn't sound right, but it was. And uh, she feels much, much, much better. She's in Michigan right now visiting her family. She was at a wedding for her cousin and was up till 3 in the morning. So she is doing just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, let me tell you something uh, about myself you may or may not know. Um, I grew up uh, in Florida and in Georgia. Uh, I, my, my, my dad is a Chick-fil-A operator, and um, he did that since before I was born. 
Um, and when he was, when I was a little kid and when he was starting, that, that was not nearly so lucrative a proposition uh, as it is now. Um, but even, even then, um, my parents decided that Christian school was really important for them, um, for us, for them. And so I went to Christian school from kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, and even though that cost my parents a lot, uh, literally and metaphorically, um, I was coming to the end of eighth grade. Um, and I, I went to this, by this point, I was in Georgia, and um, I was at this Baptist middle, middle school. It was a lovely, wonderful school. And uh, for some reason, I, I really can't tell you why, at some point, I was coming to the end and about to go into high school, and we were looking at which Christian high school I would go to, and it just, for whatever reason, dawned on me, uh, Jesus calls his people to tell people who are not Christians the good news of the gospel. And if I go to Christian high school, I don't think they're all Christians, probably, but I'm isolating myself away from a bunch of people who I'm sure are not Christians that are in the public high school. And so I said, uh, I told my parents, I want to go to public school. I want to go to public high school. Um, I don't know why that happened. I don't know what happened to my thing. I'm not here to stand up here and tell you private school is terrible or homeschooling is terrible. That's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you what happened to me and, and why my kids are in public school and why we continue to live that way. I was prepared by my private middle school and, and elementary school for uh, an impending culture war. And what I was really prepared for was stories like this in Acts chapter 5, uh, persecution. I heard this narrative a lot growing up that as even as an American persecution is coming you got to be ready to boldly stand for the gospel and I've been trained in that way of thinking for 12 years or something not not that many seven eight years I went into my high school where I did not know anybody and everybody knew people and I did not and I was ready to go to war. And uh, I'm, I just walked in that first day like, I'm, I'm going to crush some atheist skulls here. They're, they're going to be all up in my business. And I'm ready to, to just slay them with all my many truths and, and disentangle them from all these foolish philosophies. That first year of high school was the loneliest year of my life. I did not have any friends. Do you know why? Because I was a jerk. I mean, also, you know, I was 14, and it's, it's a rough time. It can be a rough time in people's lives. I had all of the attendant identity issues, trying to differentiate myself from my parents and all this stuff. But I was a jerk. I, I was prepared to receive persecution and defeat it. And I was trying to defeat everyone. And everybody else around me was like, bro, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to pass physical science, okay? I'm trying to get my home, or I'm trying to not get my homework done. I don't know what your deal is. I, I ate by myself at lunch a lot. 
And it was hard. It was a hard year. And it, it wasn't just hard for me. It was hard for my parents to watch me come home lonely, crying because I did not have friends. Not able to make the connection between my behavior and my friendlessness. There is in our kind of tribe, in our stream of Christianity, in this evangelical side of things, a long heritage of training one another up in a culture of fear, to fear the presence of approaching persecution. You can actually trace this as an intellectual history to the early 20th century. Evangelicalism is much longer than that. It's three, four hundred years. It's spread out over continents. But if you look at American evangelicalism for the past 120 years especially, you can see very strongly a strong feature of this narrative of fear from the early fundamentalists in the early 1900s. And, and many generations of people who grew up in evangelical church, I grew up in non-denominational evangelical uh, churches in a lot of ways. And you can talk to many generations of people like me who would hear and be able to sing for you the same notes that I did. And what I want to do is, is pull them out and put them alongside this passage because I want you to hear a very different story. Peter's the apostles encounter with real and true persecution. Not, not just like people think I'm silly or stupid for what I believe or disagree with what I say or whatever, but like they're getting beaten at the end of it. Real persecution. We want to see and attend to the things and themes that are here, both why they are persecuted and their response to it. I think it's really important to pay attention to that and let the scriptures speak to us in our context. If you'll notice, the first line of that verse that we first read, the first verse, is that they provoked jealousy in the ruling people and authorities. Just before, there's this little section. We, we covered Ananias and Sapphira last week, and there's this five-verse section in between that tells you all these miracles happen in the context of this community. The Christian community explodes all over Jerusalem, and these people are, are jealous of what is going on, the popularity of this new Christian movement that's happening in Jerusalem. And provoked by jealousy, they bring in the apostles and they said, we explicitly told you to stop preaching this way. Stop preaching in this name. And they're, they're really offended because the, the apostles have continued to assert that the, the guilt for Jesus' death is on their shoulders. Now, Peter also tells everybody who listens the same thing. In Acts chapter 2, he preaches a version of this sermon that you can read and we've covered. And Peter tells everybody who listens, this Jesus you crucified. And they don't like the fact that Peter is saying this. And pointing those fingers at them. And Peter says, we cannot do but this. And several commentators point out that this is, is an implicit condemnation of these people. Because what they are saying to these religious and political leaders is that we can't do but what God tells us to do. Which is also the creed that they should be living by. They should also believe the same thing. And Peter says, Christ 
has been hung from a tree, which is language from Deuteronomy, this language of cursing. And he says, you hung him from a tree. You considered him a cursed individual, but God has resurrected him to vindicate who he is. He has made him leader and Lord to invite all of Israel to repent and receive forgiveness. And they are afraid. So they're jealous and they are afraid. You can hear their fear. We're not going to forcibly bring him into the court because we're afraid that the people might stone us. So they're jealous and afraid of these people. And they are now angry at Peter's insistence that he will continue to preach this message. And they're ready to kill. They have no authority to do that. But they're ready to kill him. And this teacher stands up, Gamaliel, who has a disciple that we will come become familiar with very shortly. His name is Saul. Gamaliel stands up and says, look, people rise and fall all the time. And he gives him a couple examples. Nothing happened with those guys. It's best that you just sit back and watch. Let this thing just fizzle out. Or might it be possible that this is from God? And you don't want to be in the position of opposing God. And so the, the, the council takes this advice and they just, you know, it's just one line in the text. They just beat them a little bit. Just, they just rough them up. Probably what happens is they are given 39 lashes. They are whipped 26 times in the back, 13 times in the front, as is the custom. And they're dismissed and told to stop, knowing surely that they are not going to stop. Now, they are provoked to jealousy and to fear. That is what elicits persecution. Jealousy and fear. The narrative that I did not grow up under is that we should have a message and a life that provokes jealousy, which will create persecution. The message that I received growing up was, persecution is coming, have the best arguments, and seize power and control to prevent the persecution from happening. That's the narrative that I grew up with. But you can see here that that is not in the apostles' plans. Instead, the message that they preach, the life that they live invites this kind of response. And I think the first question that we ought to ask ourselves individually and collectively is, do we have a life with Jesus that provokes jealousy? Do you and I share a corporate life together and in the context of our own life and the context of our own families, do we live a kind of life that provokes jealousy from the outside? And I cannot answer that question for you or for us completely. In some ways, I can say, yeah, I think so. There are not a lot of places where people have this designated community that if they wanted to adopt a child, everybody would feel immediately mutually obligated to make that adoption happen, like Peter and Allie Marie have. A lot of people don't have any kind of community where any obligation exists to check up on and care for one another. You hope to find it at work or in athletic endeavors, but that's it. That kind of thing provokes jealousy. 
So in some ways, yeah, I, I maybe think so. But I think it's also an open question that we ought to ask. Does my marriage, the way that I am married, provoke jealousy in people who are outside looking in? Is the way that you are single and experiencing your singleness, does that provoke jealousy from people watching from the outside? The way that we share our lives together, does it provoke jealousy that might incite a kind of response? And clearly also these people are afraid. These people who hold power, they are afraid This message that they are preaching disrupts their power. It disrupts their claims and control over Jerusalem and all of Israel. Now what we ought to pay attention to is, that is true without the apostles saying, here's what we need to do. Get into this power center, take over, Protect ourselves, make the laws like we want. Right? It doesn't say that. Now, we're reformed people. And there's nothing wrong with moving into every sector of culture and proclaiming the good government of God and following Jesus and obeying him as consequences in every realm of life. I'm not saying that that's not true. But here in this stage of the church's existence, it is the proclamation of the message alone that is threatening to this power structure. Now my question is, who is afraid of us and why? And we ought to compare that answer to these kinds of answers in Scripture. Now, I think there are are people who are afraid of Christians, but they are afraid for reasons that we ought to repudiate. They are afraid of being being shamed or controlled without their assent or on and on and on. That is not the kind of fear that is here being presented. Here, I think it is helpful to say what kind of systems and rulers and powers exist in the world that should be afraid in the face of a lively Christian community. What I thought about when I thought about this question is, do marketing managers, advertising agencies, fear our Christian community? Here's what I mean by that. The world operates on a system of consumption and spending. And those industries are tied around your and my continued contribution to a kind of mindless, capitalistic consumption that does not match a biblical life. If we, as a people, together and individually, were radically disentangled from a habit of constant consuming and spending and consuming and spending, that kind of thing would be scary to marketing managers because we are potentially undermining their ability to earn income and have power. That kind of fear 
is a good and healthy consequence of the people of God being who they are supposed to be. Do you see what I'm saying? Whenever and wherever there are are institutions and systems of injustice and evil that operate on their own track, who would experience speed bumps and disruption by a Christian community, not trying to explicitly, not the goal is to seize power, but to instead submit all of our lives to the supreme lordship of Jesus and to have our lives dictated on his terms, that disrupts the way that the world operates and so causes fear. That is the kind of fear and jealousy that the Christian community ought to be about. And the question then that I said we should consider is, what is their response to real persecution? My response was, be a jerk. Right? Now, I didn't experience real persecution. I I was so hyped into that, I just wanted to see it wherever I could, and, and I did not honestly experience any of that. But I was ready when it came to fight back in all but physical action. And that is not the response of the apostles. They're beaten. They suffer. And they rejoice. They have been so formed as a people They experience the lashings of the whip. And their response is to rejoice. And I have to confess to you that I I fear is not my response. In myself, I fear that when or if I ever felt the lash hit my skin, my natural reaction would not be to rejoice, but to respond in anger and retribution or have a pity party or whatever, but not this. And what we have to read and, and hear and help, help this, have the scriptures help us see is that we have been discipled in a culture that has told us nonstop for the entirety of our lives that comfort and security are the highest ideals that you can attain. The highest good that you can accomplish for yourself is the absence of suffering. And here, the apostles rejoice at the honor of being counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. How were they formed into those kinds of people? That's what I want us to ask. Because I think that's what the scriptures, that's what Luke wants you to see in the book of Acts. They are formed to be this way by both habit and by the empowerment of the Spirit. We are in Acts chapter 5, and three times already in this narrative, Luke has stepped back to describe to you the nature of Christian community. 
And what Luke will do repeatedly in these sections is tell you they come together day by day to listen to the apostles' teaching, to have fellowship, and to give their stuff away and care for one another. So that their lives, day by day, are being habitually formed to be an alternative kind and quality of people. This is not happening in a moment. This is happening over the course now of their life together. And you and I are called to that kind of habituation to the kingdom of God. This is what discipleship and spiritual formation is about. You and I, day by day, together and individually, being constantly formed in the leadership and the discipleship of Jesus Christ... So that when the moment of crucible comes, you have been taught to react by instinct. And the instinctive reaction here of the day-by-day training of the community is to turn to Jesus and to worship him. That does not happen without the day-by-day habituation in grace. And... They lean into the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is what it is. The church is who she is because the Spirit of Jesus is given in a powerful way. There is no getting around the fact that Peter at the end of the Gospels can't get out of his own way, denies Jesus multiple times, and is empowered by the Holy Spirit and is standing up facing actual violence and repeatedly saying, I cannot do anything except this. You cannot see the early church without seeing the work of the Holy Spirit all over, in, and through the apostles in this early church. And for many of us, these things are at odd. The habitual formation in to the image and likeness of Jesus and the empowering experience of the Holy Spirit. Many of you kind of instinctively say it's got to be one or it's got to be the other. I've got to have this this supernatural experience or I've got to be super disciplined. And the early church is saying, no, it's both. You must be both. It is the totality of our life together that forms us for the moment when suffering comes. And it allows the apostles to embrace persecution and to rejoice. And Gamaliel's words... In fact, act as the shadow of what is coming in the rest of the book. Because what he has said in prophecy almost will come to fruition that this actually is a movement of God in the world. It is unstoppable. It is impossible to resist what he is doing. And the good news for us this morning is that these things are still true. That we can open the scriptures, have the scriptures open us up and have these questions asked of us and we can feel supremely uncomfortable. We can say, I don't know that I live a life with Jesus that is really jealousy provoking. I frankly don't know how different my life is from my neighbors. I don't know why they would be jealous of me because I live the same kind of life that they do. And the scriptures should unsettle you and discomfort you. And you should see that that is not what it looks like to follow Jesus. 
These people are committed day by day to walking with Jesus together, to submitting to his teaching. I may come to church once every six weeks. I don't know if that provokes jealousy and fear in the powers and the systems of this world. I don't know if my neighbors see anything different in my life. I, I don't know if I'm being formed to rejoice when suffering comes. I'm kind of just hoping it, uh, it just kind of happens. Just a little, pff, little special sauce in the moment. And that is not the life that the apostles of the early church live. We have lived as, a, as an evangelical stream for a long time, looking outward over the walls in fear. When will we be invaded by those people over there? All the while failing to turn inward and to look at our own house and see if it might be marked by devotion to Jesus and to one another. We've been so afraid of them out there, those people, instead of asking, is God doing something so significant and supernatural and powerful that we are trouble to the way that the world wants to operate? Do we have a richness and kind of quality of life that causes our neighbors to long to come in? And does it touch my daily life? And do I lean on the Holy Spirit? Now here, here is the good news. I am convic convicted by those lines of questions for our church and for my family and for myself. The solution, if you are like me, is first to hear the message that Peter is preaching. And to understand and to hear again. The good news is still the good news for you and for me. The mouth of that preacher who is preaching here in Acts is the mouth that betrayed him. Though he followed him for years. And in that Jesus is a love and a generosity that is right now provoking you to jealousy. I want you to hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit and where he might putting, be putting his fingers on things and not hear God's anger as he shames you, but instead hear how jealous is his love for you. All of the portions of your life that you have hidden away from him. He says, I love you and want all of you. So that the moment of repentance for, for these guys who are missing it, for the people of Jerusalem and for us today, is to hear the God of Israel who was hung on a tree as a cursed one and resurrected in triumph so that you too might be provoked by his own jealous love to run in in repentance and respond. And you can say, man, I've really failed God here. I've really failed. Put your failures up against the apostles. 
Have you failed any more than they have? You've not. The day-by-day faithlessness that you've demonstrated, that I've demonstrated, the antidote is in the day-by-day and eternal faithfulness of Jesus. The moments that you and I have reacted and responded to the world in fear is spoken to in the words of Jesus who says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Fear not. The ways that you and I have been addicted to and clung to the comfort of this world, Jesus comes close to you and says that he will comfort you with his own discomfort. That the yoke he has for you is not nearly so burdensome as the worry and fear that you have to maintain control over your own life and to uphold the power and comfort that you have now. He says, actually, my burden is so much easier and gentler and lighter than that. The message that Peter is preaching is for us today, now, in here, and the same one for all those people over there. The solution was always, ever, only Jesus. It is his own life that they are replicating in these stories. It is for the joy that was set before them that they rejoice at their sufferings, modeling the fact that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, suffered the cross. You, people of God, are included and swept up in the great joy of God that God would take his enemies and those who persecute him and bring them close. So if you are in the room today and you are feeling the failure of living up to this kind of church, I'm not telling you don't think that you haven't messed up. I'm telling you that though you have failed, though you have been faithless, God is faithful. And if you and I would repent together, if I would repent with my family, if you and I would repent together, then we can be formed into a kind of community that is on mission with Jesus, moving out without fear, so that there are no walls between me and my neighbors. I don't need to be afraid of those people over there. I'm with Jesus. I'm not afraid. I don't need to be afraid of persecution that's coming. I don't need to be afraid of what they'll say about me. I know what Jesus says about me. I know where he's going and I'm going with Jesus. I don't have to walk into a room and be the biggest jerk and the biggest loud mouth and win all the arguments. I need to follow Jesus. I need to go and just tell people, hey, it's not about me. I probably can't answer all your questions. I probably can't win all the arguments. Jesus is who you need to come and see. You need to follow Jesus because he will take you to the places that you desperately long to go. We can be that kind of community when we become the community that repents constantly and throws ourselves at the mercy of Jesus and together hold hands, committing ourselves to the habituation and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that shakes up the world and beckons our neighbors to come see Jesus. Peter walked out of that room after his beating and he went right back to what he was doing. And you and I are invited to join him to that thing that has never stopped, 
and will not stop until Gamaliel's words are fully, fully realized. That God himself will do what he has set out to do. And we get to join in with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these words, for for the, the ordinary and extraordinary ways that you give out your grace to your church. And God, I pray that people will really sense that there's grace here this morning. There is grace for those who are, who are failures like me, like Peter, that we can look to the crucified and resurrected Jesus and see he is, he is our leader. He is our friend. He is our Savior. And Father, I pray for, for those of us who have know that we've, we've gripped tightly onto the reins of our life. We've steered away from a kind of life that, that provokes jealousy and, and makes the, the powers of this world afraid. God, I pray that you would help us to be so captured and gripped by what it looks like to follow Jesus, that it would take over our daily life and that our, our life would be thrown open before the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to be that kind of people together. And Father, I pray that we would be a people of repentance. That we would hear the the loving call of a loving Father and we'd be quick to come home. We thank you so much for loving us and being faithful to us, Lord Jesus. We need your faithfulness. And we're so grateful that you will accomplish what you set out to do and nothing will stop you. 